What's up, Preaching While Black fam? I have a guest who is actually the executive director of the George Floyd Global Memorial. Her name is Danelle Austin. She's actually a friend and colleague of mine who went to Fuller with me. She has an MDiv. She's a preacher. She's a communicator. Uh, she's an artist. And she has so much to say about the black preaching task, especially when it comes to the arts and the culture. So I look forward to this conversation. I know you all are going to enjoy it. Go ahead and tune right on in. Welcome to the Preaching While Black podcast, a podcast dedicated to the calling, craft, and content of the black preaching tradition. And now here's your host, John C. Richards Jr. All right, we're here with Janelle Austin. What's up, Janelle? How are you? Hey, John, I am doing well. Thank you. For those of you who don't know Janelle, Janelle is a native of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Uh, she earned a BA in Christian Ministries from Messiah College. She has an MDiv from my alma mater uh, in Christian Ethics uh, at Fuller Theological Seminary. Also has an MA in their Cultural Studies from Fuller, uh, just because she's trying to outdo everybody else that only has one degree from there. You know what I'm saying? Um, while at Fuller, she served as the director of operations for the Pinnell Center for African-American Church Studies. She's also the founder of the Racial Agency Initiative, a resource for racial justice leadership coaching. And she serves as the executive director of the George Floyd Global Memorial in Minneapolis. And she actually, you grew up just blocks away from where he was senselessly murdered, right? That's correct. Yes. Wow. Uh, so we're going to talk about that uh, in this particular episode. But I want to start, Janelle, uh, with your call to ministry. So you graduated from Messiah and decided to um, come on over to Fuller and get an MDiv and an MA in Intercultural Studies. So when you came to Fuller, what was your idea of your call to ministry? What did that look like for you? So I'm actually going to back the journey up from before hmm. you met me. Um, <laughs> because my, uh, because everything does not begin with you, John. Uh, no. <laughs> um, no, my call really begins uh, from childhood. So I, I I grew up in a Christian home. Uh, my parents uh, were ministers. Our, my mother's still living. She continues to be a minister. And uh, we went to a black Pentecostal church, a hand clapping, foot stomping, tongue talking, sanctified wow. Pentecostal church, which meant that we were in church all day Sunday, every single night of the week. Um, there's always some kind of function, some kind of programming. Um, and and at the beginning of the year, so like we're in the new year now, there was always like a seven-day fast uh, shut-in that was happening at the church. So I had an extremely spiritual childhood. Uh, in addition to that, my father made the decision to send us to Christian schools. And so yeah. I learned the ABCs with Bible verses, uh, had Bible class from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade. And uh, 
But it was really in seventh and eighth grade when my school would send their seventh and eighth graders to Mexico with Youth with a Mission for a, a missions trip, which I now, in hindsight, call service learning trips. And I was, I'm a morning person. I always have been a morning person. And uh, I was in Mexico when I was about 13 years old. And one morning I woke up and I climbed up on the rooftop before anybody else was up and to watch the sunrise. And there was mountains on one side of us and there was mountains on the other side of us and they were purple from the sunrise. And I remember I was reading the book of Matthew. I don't remember which chapter, but uh, I started to cry. Like the Holy Spirit just really fell on me and I prayed a prayer. And I said, God, if we are going to do this thing, uh, you are going to have to give me boldness because I, growing up, was an extremely shy introvert. And I knew that I could not do what I felt God calling me to do. And so I asked for boldness. Then I asked for compassion. I said, Lord, you're going to have to give me compassion uh, because my siblings had always said I had a mean streak. So I am number four of seven uh, children. So I'm smack dab in the middle. So my siblings <laughs> always complain that I had a mean streak. Uh, now I just call it middle child syndrome. But I was convinced that they were <laughs> that they were correct. And I said, okay, God, you're going to have to give me compassion because if it is true that I am mean, I need your compassion. Huh. And then the third thing that I asked God for, I said, I... Um, I need your eyes to see people as you see people. So those are the three things I asked for, boldness, compassion, and eyes to see people as God sees people. And my life has never been the same. Uh, I I thought, uh, I majored in Christian ministries, global studies when I was in undergrad. I thought I was gonna be a missionary somewhere in the world. I knew I had a passion for cultures. I had, I had done a lot of service learning trips all throughout high school, all around the world. I loved traveling. I loved cultures. I love engaging. And so college, naturally, that's where I was going. And then when I was graduating from college, uh, the opportunity to go to Fuller appeared, and um, I decided to major in intercultural studies, which was the next step of learning, the next step of education for uh, for ministry, cross-cultural ministry. Huh. And so that's, huh. I actually came to Fuller for the intercultural studies program, thinking that I wanted to be as equipped as possible uh, to serve internationally. And um, when I graduated from that program, I was, uh, it was 2009, so the, the economic crash had happened. And, uh, or I was finishing up in 2009. And so Fuller was offering me a job as an academic advisor. They said, Janelle, you could stay on full-time academic advisor. We're restructuring. We would love to have you. Um, And so I remember saying clearly to myself, mama didn't raise no fool. So we're going to take a job. (laughs) Everybody else is getting laid off. So uh, I took the job and I ended up delaying my final three classes to eventually graduate in a winter of 2010. But it was during that 
uh, like that season, uh, I had like maybe a, a couple uh, quarters off and then I had a dream and I don't remember what the dream was, but I remember that I woke up from that dream and I said out loud, I'm supposed to be in the MDiv program. And so hmm. I go to my academic advisor and I said, you know, I think I'm supposed to be in the MDiv program. And she was like, of course. <laughs> then I go to my <laughs> other friend and I said, you know, I think I'm supposed to be in the MDiv program. And she was like, of course. I'm like, why uh, is everybody saying this? How come everybody knew this and nobody like decided to say anything nothing. to me? Right. <laughs> and um, I think it was my academic advisor who said, well, we all knew it. We were just waiting for you to come to that conclusion. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I enrolled in the MDiv program, but I enrolled with trepidation because I had a lot of trauma from my undergraduate program. Um, going to a predominantly white institution, um, it, the theology program made me feel less than. It made me feel like I didn't know theology. I could never do theology. I was always playing catch up. Um, because remember, I had gone, I was raised in a black Pentecostal church. We do huh. theology differently. And so then going into this formal institution that is teaching theology, which happened to be Anabaptist tradition, and everybody in the room seems to know all of the information already. Like there was a baseline that I did not have. Um, and I was playing catch up. And so I had a lot of trauma from my undergraduate experience studying theology that I, when I went to Fuller, I really stuck to the cross-cultural classes. And so entering into the MDiv program was, um, was really me facing my fears in so many different ways uh, because I truly believed that I couldn't do theology because the institutions that I had went to um, impressed that upon me as a, as a young black female. Um, but, but going through that program, it became very evident and clear that, uh, pastoring people was not my call. Um, one, when you're in seminary, you get the privilege of experiencing life with a lot of pastors, uh, existing pastors, people who are going to be pastors. And it was just very evident that that is not me. Um, uh -huh. and, and it got to the point where I would tell people, because uh, people would ask, if you're in the MDiv program, people ask, are you going to be a pastor? And yep. my knee-jerk response is, no, God loves people too much to put me as their pastor. <laughs> like, <laughs> I understood clearly that that, that oh. office while I respect it deeply, while I am trained to substitute if somebody's out of town or sick, huh. it is it is not my long-term deep call. And the reason is because to be a pastor, you have to put down roots. You have to invest and nourish everybody else around you. You have to be committed for the long haul. And I had weeks and my my call was to the nations. My call was to the world. My my call required me to move, and I had always understood that from a youth. Like I, m huh. my heartbeat uh, for engaging cross culturally was way too strong. 
um, to anchor me long term in one location. Um, oh. And so, and so I always knew that, and I I always understood that. So I went through the MDiv program uh, without the expectation that I would be getting ordained. I didn't want to get ordained. I am still not ordained. Um, that was never something that I desired to do. Um, and, and for me, a lot of figuring out this journey of then what does this kind of missiological cross-cultural call looks like, look like uh, when uh, now I, so we get through the economic crash, right? And I'm still working for Fuller and I want to transition out of academic advising, and I end up going into uh, the Pinnell Center. And at, during this time, lynchings are happening across our nation, right? In 2012, uh, we have Trayvon Martin. In 2014, Mike Brown. 2015, Sandra Bland. 2016, um, Alton Sterling, Philando Castile. And these are just the, the names of those that were national in, in, in media attention. This doesn't even include the, the names of people that were being lynched locally and didn't get the privilege of having national media attention. Um, and that weight was bearing on me. And I had been doing like racial justice work and um, racial reconciliation work since my college undergrad year, since 2004 formally. And so that was always kind of like my side hustle. But it was really in these years of just a pivoting, LA taught me a lot about protests of pivoting to protest where I, I saw this, this thing of racial justice um, becoming less and less something on the uh, peripheral edges of my call and coming more into the center and really aligning itself with this, this cross-cultural work because the work of racial justice requires huh. crossing cultural boundaries and understanding cultural um, in a way where then you can make the connection. And and in so many ways, the work of racial justice is deeply aligned with the um, the, the process of preaching. Um, and it requires understanding, okay, what is going to be the hermeneutical application, right? How are you going to make this land for people so that they could take it home and make it work for themselves? How are they going to understand the, the the justice word that God is giving us to actually implement it for their lives. And so um, this, this journey, this call was never a one moment in time. Like uh, I, I never got the privilege that Paul had to just like go blind for three days and then wake up and be <laughs> like, I'm not supposed to be killing people no more. <laughs> Let's preach uh. the gospel instead. That was not my journey. My journey started at, in a seven-day shut-in when I was a child, uh, crawled up underneath the chairs, learning how to pray. And God has been walking with me ever since and just uncovering what those layers of learning and walking with God over the years um, are for. Hmm. So, yeah, so that's that's kind of my journey into this call of even what I do now, um, doing yeah. this deep racial justice work. Yeah, that takes a, a good amount of self-awareness for someone to say, hey, surrounded by pastors, I'm not called to pastor. I may I may be preaching, I may be teaching, I may be communicating, 
But I understand what local pastoral work looks like, and I'm not called to do that. In the MDiv program, it takes a lot. And that really helped me understand, you know, your call um, as a whole overall to what the task that you're called to do. We're going to talk about uh, your craft and your content here in a minute, but we're going to take a quick break right quick. Scholars have referred to the original black church as the invisible institution because enslaved people were often not allowed to worship freely. They'd have to gather, sing, and preach in secret to avoid being beaten. Yet they still developed a deep devotion to the authority of scripture and the liberation narrative. Today, many Christians who don't fully agree with conservatives or progressives feel invisible. They're not well represented in politics or mainstream media. In response, the AND campaign has created the Invisible Institution Newsletter, or IVI. We'll be providing political commentary, policy breakdowns, and more for Christians who believe in social justice and moral order, not one or the other. Go to andcampaign.org and subscribe if you're sick and tired of feeling invisible. Now, Janelle, you have degrees in Christian ethics, uh, MDiv with Christian ethics concentration, and also intercultural studies. Can you tell me how that training helped to inform or shape the messages that you do preach and teach when you get opportunities to do that? Absolutely. Um, and what is what is not formally written on my transcript is that um, I also heavily focus my studies in preaching. So I took uh, my internship with preaching. The I studied under Mark Labradon at the uh, John Lo. Uh, John Lloyd Oberly Institute. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> I could be mm-hmm. wrong. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> okay, I got it. Um, so I studied there, studied under Carolyn Gordon for black preaching. Um, I I studied uh, under Bill Pinnell informally, uh, just oh. traveling with him as a, a, a wing woman <laughs> as he went and he preached in different places across Southern California. Um, and I actually, uh, I actually went to a preaching school when I was 14 and studied preaching even before I even got to college. Um, and, and so preaching has always been a part of my journey. I was the first preaching chaplain in my undergraduate as well, uh, was appointed to that position. And so between cross-cultural studies, preaching and ethics, um, they blend together so well. Why? Because the gospel is a gospel that transcends culture. Um, The the beauty, and that's just transcends culture, but at the same time, it's embodied within culture. The the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that it has lasted for over 2,000 years by the Holy Spirit going into cultures and revealing God's self to people in different languages, right? And you have Acts 2. Y'all, we're all hearing these people speak in our own language. Like, what's going on? This is is the work of God since the beginning of time, being extremely present in all cultures, in all contexts, in all spaces, um, in all of the world. Because in the beginning um, was God, right? And God was the one who created everything that we see, feel, hear, experience. So that's the cultural aspect. Um, huh. The uh, 
the ethical aspect um i mean the basics of ethics is like what's right what's wrong right uh the basics of justice i like to reduce the definition to justice in a simplified way of just saying it's doing the right thing <laughs> like what is yeah. justice it's doing the right thing whatever that yeah. is in that moment whatever the right thing is do it you're doing justice um and in micah 6 8 when god says um or the prophet says, he has shown you, O oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with God. I mean, like that is the basis of our spirituality and, and who we are supposed to be. And so the ethics is, is intertwined with what it means to actually do justice in that process of decision-making of how I am going to take that step toward justice um, huh. and how I'm going to wrestle with all of these gray areas and to figure out what is what is right and what is not right. Um, and then preaching, preaching is the work of trying to figure out what is it that God is saying to the people in this moment in time in history huh. and doing the study to say what has God said to the people throughout time and throughout history. Um, so that way our, we know that God is not schizophrenic. We know that, <laughs> that God's word um, is, is stays the same and is always truth. And so as we study history, we have a clearer sense of what God is saying now. Um, and so huh. that it helps guide us to make sure that we're not off and saying crazy things that God's like, nope, don't assign that to my name. <laughs> I did not mm, say that. Yeah. Uh, I do not do that. You could, you could check the history records. And so being able to embody the work of preaching as a part of justice work, as a part of crossing cultures and going into different spaces, um, they, they all, um, they, they blend together quite nicely for the the work that it, um that, that god has laid out for me hmm. now for as long as i've known you you've been pretty immersed in the arts you're you're a gifted poet i've heard your poems and and now you actually help curate one of i think our country's most famous memorials when it comes to racial justice at the george floyd uh, memorial global memorial there in minneapolis what role does the arts play in the way that you communicate when you preach or teach? Uh, that's a great question. Uh, first, I want to say that I don't curate, I caretake. Um, and, I, and I say that intentionally because we as a community had that conversation about would we use the language of curation or not. Um, mm. And we, mm. we landed on caretake because our job is to lift up the voices of the people and not to organize it and, and to say, this is how you should hear the voices of the people. Um, and so huh. we, are, we are keepers of their protests uh, and caretakers of their protests. So um, I want to say that. But when it comes to preaching, preaching is an art in and of itself, right? It's a skill set, um, how we... Um, our, art is, is at its essence just our creative self, our, our ability to educate and learn and process our emotions um, and share that with others in, in healthy ways. Um, and, and the craft of being able to, to navigate uh, deep and challenging issues without 
harming other people in that process um, is a very challenging task and a very challenging art form. Um, And the best preachers are some of the most creative preachers. The use of storytelling, um, the use of poetry, the use of alliteration, the use of song, uh, the use of dance in preaching. I mean, this is why I love the Black church, because the Black church brings in all of our emotions and all of our ability to create using our emotions and delivers a message that allows people to hear the word of God um, connecting with their most creative beings. Um, One of the most beautiful passages in all of scripture is in Genesis when it tells us that we are created in the image and likeness of God. Well, if God is a creator, we too are creators. We have the ability to create. Um, and, and art is just that. And so what does it look like when we are delivering our sermons that we're not just delivering a message, but we are creating opportunities for people to hear the word in new ways and hear it afresh um, and to be energized by it, to feel it in their bones. Like if I feel it in my bones as I'm studying, how do I transfer that energy and deliver it in such a way where, um, where people uh, are renewed and are refreshed um, huh. through through the creative process. Um, it's a tool. Huh. Yeah, that's good. So we've talked about your call. We've talked about the craft that you're preaching. Uh, after the break, we're going to talk about the content of your preaching. And I want to talk about some of those international trips that you've taken. What's up, Preaching Wild Black Fam? Listen, I hope this interview has been a blessing so far. If you want more content and resources around Preaching Wild Black, go over to our YouTube channel, Preaching Wild Black. We have all the episodes from our interviews up, but we also have other resources for you as a black preacher as you try to hone your craft, your call, and your content for black preaching. Now back to our episode. So Janelle, you t- you've talked about traveling extensively to places like Mexico, South Africa, Kenya, Dominican Republic. You've gone around the world. As a preacher, how have those cross-cultural experiences shaped how you look at text and prepare your messages? That is a very important question. I think so much of what we do as preachers when we're exegeting the text, we are also exegeting a culture. Um, There's so much culture in scripture. There's so so much historical culture. Um, And it's important that we recognize that we are people who live in the context of a culture as well. And And so we are coming to the text with all of our cultural lenses and that, sh- that shapes how we're understanding. So now let's add um, another layer. You're going to somebody else's home, somebody else's culture, uh, where people uh, eat different foods, they drink different drinks, their houses are different, their spaces are different, the, how they communicate is different, their language is different, the syntax of their language is different. Um, everything is different, right? The air is different. Uh, you could actually see stars in some of the countries, <laughs> whereas you can't <laughs> see that at night. So how they experience the earth and the world around us is different. And so the, the ability to preach in another space, in another cultural space when you're crossing cultures, requires a couple things. Um, one, 
it may require a translator. Um, that's huge because a translator is not just translating language. They're also translating culture uh, because what is um, understood as uh what is, what is understood in one language doesn't always communicate in another. And so you need someone to be able to uh, translate um, the art of preaching into uh, the ears of the people. Now, let's say uh, English, uh, since I speak English, if English is a language that is understood by the majority of people who are there, there's still some cultural differences, right, in terms of how we move and think. Um, but it, it, it re regardless whether if I'm in a place where there's English or the place where the people don't speak English, I have to be able to spend time in that culture, in that context, and just pay attention. What are my surroundings? Who do I see? Who are these people? But then also paying attention to say, okay, God, what do you have for your people? And especially if it's a quick trip, right? If you don't if you're not there long enough to be able to just steep into the community that you're speaking into, that means you have to rely heavily on God and the power of the Holy Spirit to say, Lord, you know what these people are going through. You know what these people need. You know the word that you have for them. Uh, your servant is willing, use me. And huh. and it, it you have to rely heavily on the power of God and the belief that God is a God of all people and that the belief that God is everywhere um, and that there are just some things that you don't know, but the Holy Spirit can work with you and through you to be able to deliver the word that the people need to hear. Um, it is not easy. Uh, there are some technical things that you have to consider. Like uh, if you have a translator, you have to cut your sermon in half. Uh, because if your time is still 30 minutes, you can only give 15 minutes of sermon because somebody else has to use the 15 minutes to translate. And so then you have to hone down your sermon. How do I hit the main points? What is it that I'm trying to communicate in the shortest amount of time? Do the stories that work in my context work in this context as well? Um, have you read the local newspaper of where you're going to see what is bothering the people and can do you understand those stories enough to be able to integrate them without messing that up um it's hey. not easy to preach cross-culturally um but it is a privilege and it's possible hey, hey, hey. so one of the things that you mentioned earlier that i want to talk just a little bit about as we uh close our time out is this idea of unlearning um, you mentioned missions trips and you're like i didn't know better and now you use different language and you've attended um you know private white private christian school you've done quote unquote missions trips uh how did you go about that unlearning i know people are calling it deconstruction these days but how has that kind of shaped um, your message these days or shaped who you are these days when you went through that process absolutely so when i was in uh my undergrad i took a service learning course in the sociology department and we talked a lot about that in terms of what it what it what did it mean to practice service learning as opposed to missions trips um because in the missiology department they were they were using the, the language of missions trips a lot more freely but in the sociology oh. department really thinking about the impact on people and well-beings and 
there's this article that was written decades ago called To Hell with Good Intentions. And the author talks about American missions trips going down, building walls sideways, and then leaving and patting themselves on the back to say, look what we did. And then the local people have to unbuild the wall and rebuild it. So it's been a waste of resources, a waste of time, um, an extra burden on folks. And like literally they're just babysitting folks so that they can feel better about themselves. Um, And so what does it mean to actually serve and learn when and believe that just like when we say listen to black people like we we know what's best for ourselves in that same spirit when we go to someone else's context we go to somebody else's culture they know what's best for themselves what does it mean for us to listen first and to posture ourselves um to actually learn from them first and foremost and so when in 2006 and in 2007, I actually spent two summers in Mexico City um, uh, with an organization called Avance, and they actually specialize in bringing in individuals, pairing them with a local church or a nonprofit organization, and you live, you stay in host families, we uh, stay with host families who may or may not speak English, and you're there for two months, and you have to serve that church however they need you. And you don't get to choose. Um, you're you're with a pair. Uh, it's you and your roommate, and you you serve, and that's it. And I think that really started to shape my imagination around what does it mean um, to humble oneself and to be patient enough with others, and be patient enough with yourself when you don't know the language, when you don't know the culture, um, but you are being tasked to submit unto, under the leadership of this local pastor and huh. and learn what it is to do church in this context. Huh. Can I just say that I'm glad that the preacher with wings wound back up in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and that you're doing some amazing work there in Minneapolis. I appreciate you for everything you're doing for the George Floyd Global Memorial and the work you're doing through your organization. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you so much. So thank you for joining me on this episode, Janelle, and we are looking forward to more great work from you around racial justice, but also just learning more from you from a cross-cultural perspective as a Black preacher and understanding how the best exegete cultures. This has been a rich conversation. I know that those who are listening have been benefited by it. So grateful for you, grateful for those who are listening, and we'll see y'all next go-round. Thank you, John. Pleasure to be here. What? a rich conversation with my sister Janelle. I think it was challenging for us as preachers, especially her suggestions around cross-cultural ministry and listening to our brothers and sisters who are in diaspora, but also challenging in the sense that all preachers don't look the same. She said that she was not interested in local pastoral ministry, but she is a preacher through and through and does it through the work that she's doing there in Minneapolis. So why don't you do me a favor? Go ahead and subscribe to the podcast. Follow the podcast. Give me a like on the YouTube stream if you're watching on YouTube. And make sure you share this with other folks. I think other people will be blessed by this particular episode. And we're going to continue our conversations with preachers around this nation. I do pray that you've been blessed by many of these. And we'll see y'all next go round. Thanks for listening to the Preaching While Black podcast. For more helpful content and resources, connect with us online at preachingwhileblack.com.